For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, listen to the award-winning poetry created by three Tucson artists who just happen to be 7, 9, and 10 years old. How growing up as a witness to the classic era of filmmaking at Old Tucson built a deep connection between a UA educator and the American Western. And in part four of Youth Crossing Gender Borders, find out what riding the ambiguity train means to parents and their gender non-binary kids. Those stories are all next on Arizona Spotlight. This summer, the University of Arizona Poetry Center, the Pima County Public Library, and AZPM collaborated on a poetry contest for students ranging from kindergarten to high school age. The theme was, What Do You Want the World to Know About How You Feel? And winners were chosen in each of three age categories by a panel of local artistic luminaries. Next, I'll talk with three of these young writers, Vivian, who is nine years old, Liam, who is seven, and Stella, who is 10. They impressed me not only with their poetry, but also with their thoughtful answers to my questions and their confidence during the interviews. It's no surprise that the pandemic played a big part in what these kids chose to write about. But there's also plenty of helpful reminders about what their generation is learning from this experience. My name is Vivian Tomei and I go to IST International School of Tucson. And so what's your age and what grade are you in? I'm in fourth grade and my age is nine. What do you think is special about the kind of teaching that goes on there? Do you think that you're getting a different education than you would be in public school? Yes, because they have a education program where kids can learn Chinese, German, Spanish, and whatever language. What languages are you interested in? I, right now, am learning German. It has been pretty fun, and I think it is interesting to learn new words. Do you remember the first time that you became aware of poetry? Yes. Our good friend, uh, a neighbor, actually, her name is Elizabeth, and she runs a poetry mailbox in our neighborhood. And she told me about that. And she said that if I wanted to, I could enter and see what happened. How does a poetry mailbox work? So there is an old mailbox in like about right in the middle of this street that we have in our neighborhood. And every day I or Elizabeth can come over and we could print favorite poems that we like and we could print them and cut them out and make, decorate them and put them in that poetry mailbox for other people to enjoy. Wow. So have you received some poetry from other people? Have you read new things because of the mailbox? Yeah. Um, There is a poem that I found. It is called Apple. And it's a concrete poem, and it has words like yum, yum, and it repeats words over and over again. (laughs) Um, Is that one of your favorite styles of poetry? Yes. 
I think it is interesting because my great friend, Raina Hunter, and I are doing homeschooling together, and we have read it together, and we end up laughing a lot. (laughs) Well, did it take you very long to write your poem? Yours is called The Garden of My Heart, and it's a little longer than some of the other poems written by kids in your age group. It took me about two days, I would say. Well, first I had to actually think about what I wanted to write about. Then I wrote a rough draft. And then I had to make all final decisions. And I wrote it down all on a computer and typed it up. And then I read it to myself. And I changed some things that I didn't like. And then I left it like that. Well, would you like to read your poem for us now? Sure. It is called The Garden of My Heart by Vivian Tomei. The garden of my heart is full of turquoise flowers and golden retrievers with blue jays. It is a young garden that smells like lavender. I also have a pool with inflatable seahorses. The weather in my garden is sunny in the morning and stormy in the afternoon. The clouds are made out of cotton candy and the rain is apple juice. I want to plant the seeds of joy, love, and anger at injustice because I dream of people being treated the same way. I will water these seeds with kindness and I will pull back the weeds of sadness and take care of them. I start by feeding them. As it grows, my garden will be full of seashells and it will look nice. The end. That was beautiful. First of all, I love how you have things that you think about how they look, you think about how they smell, you think about how apple juice tastes. Um, I like all of those things a lot. And I like what you're saying about how you plan to grow your garden in the future. I think those are very inspirational words, Vivian. So I think you did a really great job. Thank you. Thank you. Young man, can you please introduce yourself for us? I am Liam Berg, and I am seven years old. And where do you go to school? I'm homeschooled. Yeah. And how has that been going for you so far? Good. Yeah. Were you interested in poetry before you heard about the poetry contest? Actually, the Every Pair of Eyes started out as a song. I really like writing songs. Do you play an instrument? Um, uh, the drums the most. Well, that's cool. I'm a drummer. Cool. So you work out a rhythm or something and then you write lyrics to go with it? Sometimes I just start playing the drums, and then, like, later, sometimes, like, a month, I just think of the lyrics. That's what happened with the Every Pair of Eyes. Are you influenced by musicians? Do you have uh, artists that you like a lot? Um, yeah. Like who? Um, one of my favorites when I was a little bit younger was Johnny Cash. (laughs) And I also liked Neil Young. Well, that's pretty good taste, I'd say. That's all right. Have you ever tried the Beatles? Yeah. Who would you say influenced you when you wrote Every Pair of Eyes? Is there anyone you can cite? Basically, most of it was, uh, like, books, and uh, I kind of just made up the, like, rhythm and things like that. Well, would you like to read your poem now for our listeners? Yes. Well, please do. Every Pair of Eyes. By Liam Berg. Every pair of eyes sees a different thing. Nobody can have the same experience. We're all so different, but we're all the same. 
What did you think when they told you that you had gotten second place in your age group? We were really excited, me and my family. Is this the first time that your creativity has been uh, recognized by other people? Actually, I think so. Well, I think you've got a bright career ahead of you. I like the way you incorporate music and poetry together. And of course, it's always nice to talk to a fellow drummer. Thank you very much, Liam. You're welcome. Hi, I'm Stella. I'm 10 years old, and I'm in fifth grade at Montana Vista Elementary School. And what do you think are your favorite subjects? I like writing, reading, and art. How did poetry enter your life, Stella? In second grade, my mom started taking me to the U of A Poetry Center for the monthly Kids Day. And what did that make you think about writing poetry? I mean, once you learned how to do it, did it change your idea about what poetry means? Yeah, after that, I started appreciating poetry more than I did beforehand. Well, when you heard the theme for this poetry contest was going to be, what do you want the world to know about how you feel? What did that phrase inspire in you? I think I thought, well, we're all in quarantine right now, and so I kind of wanted to like, talk about more like confusion because for all, we don't know what other people's like boundaries or what they're comfortable with is. Yeah. What are the biggest changes that you feel in your life, Stella, since the pandemic started um, in February or March for, for most of us? Um, probably like not being able to communicate and like socialize with friends as much. Are you using other ways to talk to people, though? Like, of course, a lot of people yeah. use Zoom. Yeah, I've been using a lot of video chat. What's your advice on that for people who maybe haven't even started doing it yet, people who don't know whether or not that's a good way to communicate with their friends? What do you say? Um, it is a very good way to communicate, and it, like, um, as long as you have good Internet connection, then it gets passed. <laughs> yeah, well, that's important. Stella, would you be able to read your poem for us now? When Will This End? by Stella Osmond. Epidemic to pandemic, what a catastrophe. The cases rising one by one, the cure is still a mystery. Isolation, masks, and gloves. For all we know, this will cover all of 2020's history. Loneliness drives us all crazy, quarantined, worried, silent. And though our calendars are all hazy, all vacations off the list, and I bet we'll all admit that we are being very lazy. I feel isolated and confused, but overall okay. Months ago, when invited somewhere, I would never have refused. Now, I don't know which is the right choice to choose. I think the reason that you got first place, Stella, is because you wrote directly to the emotions that so many of us are feeling. Whether we're your age or whether we're older, um, I think you really got to the center of, of how this is affecting all of us. Have you thought about writing more as you grow up? Um, yeah, I do like to write a lot. Do you keep a journal or anything like that? Um, I write a lot of stories on Google Docs, and yes, I do write in um, uh, uh, notebooks. Are the things you write, would you consider some of it to be fan fiction? Mm, uh, no, it's probably more of realistic fiction. My guests were Vivian, Liam, and Stella, whose poems were recognized for their excellence in the kindergarten through fifth grade division. There is a link to read all of the winning compositions at azpm.org.
Next week on this show, we'll meet the winners in the middle school grades and hear what they had to say on the topic of what do you want the world to know about how you feel. While he was growing up, Cody Young got to be witness to a long-gone era of film production at Old Tucson Studios. His father was known as Blackjack Young, and he was a Hollywood stuntman who found a lot of work in production set during the Old West. Now, Cody Young teaches film students at the University of Arizona about Westerns. But as the years have passed, his relationship with that genre has grown to be a complicated one. We'll hear Cody Young next and this story produced by David Finster. My father was a Hollywood stuntman. After he got out of the war, he kicked around Hollywood wanting to be an actor, and he fell into stunt work, mostly doing underwater stunts. He was like the third person to put on the creature of the Black Lagoon costume, so he was the creature at one point, but he fell into westerns. So he did a lot of great westerns, a lot of John Ford westerns, John Wayne westerns, worked with Howard Hawks, and he was instrumental in building up Old Tucson. For over 50 years, Old Tucson studio has been an important part of the magic of movie making. And at one time or another, almost every major star has walked these historic streets. Over 20 live shows are performed at Old Tucson daily, including the most authentic gunfight reenactments anywhere. So I was born into this context, you know, and I was raised out at Old Tucson. I was a child actor. I did, you know, jobs out at Old Tucson. So, I mean, the Western is something that's just intrinsically part of my character and life. But as I start to study it when I come to school and I start to confront ideas of white privilege and the media representing only a specific point of view and that being a very white point of view. And I can see how the Western has achieved this sort of huge building block in this attitude. The West was being mythologized even as it was being enacted. So the historical West and the mythological West are two very different things. And it's this legend that speaks to a lot of intrinsic values of the country, of freedom, of individuality. Certainly uh, an ideal notion of masculinity is uh, perpetuated by the Western. And, but mostly, uh, above all, it's a very Anglo-centered view of manifest destiny. There is an effacement of people of color. This effacement of an entire segment of non-white culture leads people to believe that there were no black cowboys, when in fact one out of every four cowboy in the West was black. White pioneers coming to the West already were coming to a culture, a cowboy culture established by Mexican vaqueros. That the West is this really complicated uh, collision and imbrication of cultures. But, I mean, we don't see that. The most egregious thing you could really level against the Western is the way it treats indigenous peoples. They are an obstacle. They are embodiments of the savagery of the West that needs to be tamed to make sure that American civilization comes through. You don't see their point of view, 
they emerge out of the wilderness as hostile. There's no real talk about why they're hostile. They're just a problem that needs to be solved, and usually through violence. There's this there's, there's idea of justified violence to enable uh, the coming of America. While a lot of Westerns kind of towed the line as far as uh, reinforcing dominant ideology, there have always been Westerns that have questioned that ideology. Whether that was, it was through gender, like one of my favorites, Johnny Guitar, uh, with Joan Crawford, films questioning the white-centric focus of the genre, Posse, a 1993, movie directed by Mario Van Peebles, is using the Western to say something. I'm an instructor with the School of Film, Theater, and Television. I specialize in film history. The whole class is designed to introduce students, these are film and television students, to the Western genre because many of them perhaps haven't been exposed to it. They don't really know its importance and it's really designed to let them know just how influential the genre is as far as establishing not only a form of American mythology, but how it influences contemporary cinema today. As much as I love the genre, it is problematic. It does have a number of things that speak to the problems we're experiencing today. That story was produced by David Finster for Arizona Illustrated on PBS6. You can watch the video now at azpm.org. And now the fourth in a five-part series, Youth Crossing Gender Borders. It explores the landscape of young people and gender identity. Contributing producer Laura Markowitz talks to teens, parents, and experts on the forefront of understanding. Most people are raised to believe there are only two genders, male and female. From before we're born and to the end of our lives, we're divided into those camps. But what happens when a child identifies as both? Laura Markowitz has the story. It's dinner time on a school night, and Diana Wilson is in the kitchen cooking up some edamame and pot stickers for her two teenagers. So Stefan is um, at rehearsal that just finished, so he should be home in like 10 minutes or so. Speak of the devil. Hi, Stefan. Hi. Stefan is 16, a junior in high school. He's wearing a sweatshirt and men's shorts. Well, I'm tall and I'm really built. People always ask me, oh, do you play football? And I'm like, tee <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> His bedroom closet is full of ruffled dresses and glittery high-heeled shoes. It's, it would be too confusing to, to call myself a girl. Also, I don't feel like a full-on girl, so I would never say I'm a girl. But I express myself as a feminine person sometimes, but I still say I'm a boy, and I feel like a boy who likes to explore the spectrum of gender. Stefan identifies as gender non-binary. 
because I love being like the boy who looks like a boy, but like is wearing heels or makeup. Diana Wilson says her oldest son was always this way. At about one, one and a half years old, my biologically born male son was drawn to all things sparkly and beautiful, and the journey began really early in terms of exploring gender. When Stefan was three, she Googled the term gender nonconforming. When we would go shopping, it was always a little bit stressful that things were so gendered in the stores, both at the toy store and at the clothing stores, Mm -hmm. um, because I have really strong memories of Stefan going down the, you know, quote-unquote girls' aisles at toy stores and continuing to look over his shoulder and seeing if anyone was going to watch him pick up a Barbie and being very self-conscious about that. That's the thing I remember most. I would love to, like, go look at the Barbies. That was my favorite thing to do, but... I was always nervous that someone was going to come be like, why are you looking at the Barbies? Now I don't care. (laughs) But back then, it was really tough. So when Stefan wanted to wear dresses to preschool, Wilson supported him. When you were about six and starting first grade, you definitely started getting comments from other kids who would question you on your clothing expression. Yeah. You learned really quick to put it away at school, all on your own but it broke my heart to see you put that stuff away, but you kind of knew that socially you were going to become a target. Yeah. Tried to, like, block those memories out because I don't, I didn't like thinking about putting my identity away to please other people. I felt more like I was, like, the only person in the world who, like, was feeling this way. Diana Wilson looked around for resources for her child, and she found a camp on the East Coast that was specifically for gender non-binary and transgender kids. We walked into the building where all the kids were running around and wearing dresses. It, it was pretty emotional, I think, for all of us because Stefan was so scared and then his face just lit up. And then I just started dreaming out loud about how great it would be to have an experience here locally. And that's how Camp Born This Way was started. It's for transgender and gender non-binary kids and their families. We just had our eighth annual camp. The first year we had five families. What happens at camp? What kind of activities do you have? We do normal activities like arts and crafts. Archery. There's done archery. Bike workshops. We've had a costume designer that came out from New York City and helped the kids all design and and wear their own costumes in the talent and fashion show as well. Um, Oh, yeah, we have a talent show. (laughs) That's Stefan's 13-year-old brother, Finner. I'm a... 100% identify as a male. He attended Camp Born This Way, but just for a few years. But eventually it came out of my fun zone because the people there were so different from me, and I didn't really fit in. Ironically, Stefan says he also felt that he didn't quite fit in at Camp Born This Way, at least not in the beginning. That's because most of the other kids were transgender. Because the stories are so different. And then he started to wonder if maybe he was trans. And one year after camp, he kind of started saying, well, maybe, you know, maybe I want to be a girl. I went through quite a while where I thought I might be trans. And that was kind of the hardest time for me to go through because I was kind of fighting with myself in my head about, you know, if I transition, then I can't really go back to being a male. And I still had urges to, like, express myself as a male and as a female. We kind of just had to ride the ambiguity train of not knowing what the outcome would be. And as puberty approached, that made me nervous. 
For transgender kids, hormone blockers delay the physical changes of puberty, and this can make the physical transition more successful. And the doctors had said that he was going to be pretty tall, and we thought, well, if he is going to decide to transition, then the blockers are going to be kind of an important part of becoming taller than he might want to become. And so we, I would just keep checking in about that, like, do you want to go on blockers? Is this something you're interested in? And the answer was always no, but there was part of me that was a little bit nervous and worried that I might be missing the boat on that because maybe he wasn't being honest with himself. Mm-hmm. And I think it was also that it was such a kind of a deadline thing because I was approaching puberty so fast. It just turned out that he wasn't necessarily saying he is a girl, but that if he did transition, then he would be able to wear feminine clothing and no one would give him a hard time. Yeah. That's exactly what that was. You know, I like my my body the way it is. I like having a masculine body. So it, I think taking hormones would just, you know, mess that all up. And it would, it would just kind of like push me too far over towards the feminine side. And I don't want to be all the way over there. Many people assume that gender non-binary means gay. But gender identity is about who you know yourself to be inside. And sexual orientation is about who you're attracted to romantically and sexually. Experts say that gender identity is formed by the age of three or four, while sexual orientation develops later. In seventh grade, I was like talking with my friends about like girls and crushes. And I was like, wait a second. (laughs) I'm not attracted to girls. What's going on here? Could, Could I really be gay and... And so I kind of realized, I'm like, oh, I'm just a gay boy who likes to dress up in feminine clothes. I was nervous about what people would think about me, but at this point, I kind of don't care anymore because I just, you know, it's my life and I'm going to live it how I want to. So if, I'm gonna, if I want to wear a dress, I'm going to wear a dress. He knows his gender confuses people because they expect him to be male, and he's not, or at least not exclusively. I think, you know, you can be as confused as you want to be about it, but as long as you're being respectful to um, people who are asking for specific pronouns or people who are just expressing themselves, then you can just, you know, live your life and you don't need to worry about these people. It's their life. Then, yeah. yeah. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Laura Markowitz. Music was written and performed by Noah James. To learn more about support groups for gender non-binary youth and to listen to more episodes of Youth Crossing Gender Borders, visit azpm.org. And tune in next week for the final episode. I used to get parents bringing their kids to me saying, make sure this kid isn't trans. You will do harm to children if you try to get them to change their gender identity. The Roots of Transphobia next week on Arizona Spotlight. Thank you for listening. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. Our interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.